This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on October 13, 2019, with Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D. Neil Douglas Klotz is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. Living in Fife, Scotland, he directs the Edinburgh Institute for Advanced Learning and for many years was co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He is also co-founder of the International Network of the Dances of Universal Peace. A frequent speaker and workshop leader, he is the author of several books including Prayers of the Cosmos, The Hidden Gospel, The Genesis Meditations, The Sufi Book of Life, Blessings of the Cosmos, The Tent of Abraham, and Desert Wisdom. He has also produced three audio series of teachings on the Aramaic approach to Jesus, published by Sounds True. Known for his citizen diplomacy work, Neil led several group trips to Russia and the Middle East, and in 2004 was co-founded the Edinburgh International Festival of Middle Eastern Spirituality and Peace. In 2005, he was awarded the Kessler Keener Foundation Peacemaker of the Year Award for his work in Middle Eastern peacemaking. Under his Sufi name, Sadi Shakur Shisti, Neil also offers spiritual retreats, combining his work with native Middle Eastern spirituality with the lineages of Shisti Sufism. He was a longtime student of the Murshid Moinadin Jablonski, the spiritual successor of Sufi Ahmed Murad Shisti. Saadi was recognized as a teacher in the Sufi path in 1981 and a senior teacher, or Murshid, in 1993 in the lineage of the Sufi Ruhaniyat. Neil Douglas Klotz, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're delighted to have you, and we will begin with, uh, because this is our first conversation with you on this program, we'll begin with our what has become our standard question, which is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth, <laughs> and in so doing, uh, identify any experiences or moments that, in retrospect, would seem to have pointed in the direction that your life has taken as an author, practitioner, etc. I think, uh, you know, if I look back at my early life, uh, there are a number of uh, experiences and circumstances that colluded to take me on the strange path I followed. Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on the outer level, the more uh, family level, uh, I did. I grew up hearing various languages in my family, hmm. and that included not only English, uh, but also German and Polish and a bit of Yiddish. Ah, hmm. And although I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, my 
one side of my family still actively uh, spoke German. And so I, I believe that, that listening to different languages when one is very young, I mean, the research does show that that predisposes one to being able to learn languages uh, much easier later in life. And, um, and I, I was, in fact, very easily able to learn German uh, in secondary school, high school, mm. and, uh, and then took both, both a German and English major later in university. Uh, so that, that's one sort of outer circumstance. The other also having to do with my family is that um, my father was an early chiropractor in the state of Illinois. Huh. And in those days, uh, I was growing up in the 1950s, uh, it was only slightly better than being a witch doctor in terms of uh, conventional culture. And uh, my fa I remember my father telling me that he had to go study with one of his mentors before he went to chiropractic college. He had to study with one of his mentors by, by sneaking into some basement apartment in the middle of Chicago uh, because this guy was operating, I don't know, you know, without a license or whatever. Uh, my father did go to chiropractic college, but it was still very much under attack by the AMA uh, at that point, and uh, they wanted to put all alternative uh, doctors out of business. And, you know, so on that level, you know, we grew up, I grew up, my brothers and I grew up in this sort of this atmosphere of being under siege by the establishment. <laughs> ah. hmm. um, and uh, my father... Well, my father and my mother were not interested in really that interested in conventional religion in any sense. They were more interested in um, the early ecological movement under Rachel Carson, ah. uh, who wrote Silent Spring, as you may know. Right, right. And also was a wonderful marine biologist and early prophet of the ecological movement. Uh, and also they're very interested in Edgar Cayce. Hmm. Uh, the American psychic, right? At least most of your listeners will have heard of. And Casey uh, did various sorts of channelings on alternative healing remedies. Yes, he uh, did. As well as on other, how would you say, more out there subjects like UFOs and Atlantis and reincarnation and all sorts of things. So my parents were really more involved in that, more engaged in that, uh, and we grew up with a lot of a lot of that. Uh, when we heard the Bible, uh, when we heard about the Bible, it was mainly being told stories, stories of the Bible and rather than theology. You know, however, my parents, because my father worked in a small town in Illinois, uh, my parents decided that the safest thing for us was to pretend to be uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran Christians. <laughs> quite a conservative branch of the Lutheran Church, or was then in the 50s. Mm -hmm. it, I wouldn't say they were fundamentalists, but they were very much, uh, as my friend Matt Fox would call, fall redemption and uh, quite quite strict. And so we went to Missouri Synod Lutheran Primary School uh, and also secondary school, so elementary oh, wow. school and high school in, in American terminology. And um, and so I learned uh, Luther's small catechism by heart because that's what you were required to do in those days. Oh, wow. To get through secondary, to get through primary school, get through primary school. So most of you will not mercifully 
have had to go through all this, but you know, you really had to do, you really did have to memorize a chapter and verse by heart. And then you would stand up in the middle of church uh, and they would ask you a random question from Luther's small catechism. And you had to answer with Luther's theological argument and the so-called proof text, that is the citation from the King James Bible that proved what Luther was saying. Wow. Um, so it's, I don't know if that predisposed me to public speaking, but uh, <laughs> well, the one, thing it, one thing it did do is it trained my memory very well. So yeah. I, and any memory training, I feel, is very good. Uh, and it's, it's a lost art now. Children don't learn things by heart. Uh, they barely know who Shakespeare was. Uh, and the Bible is sort of out the window. It's, it also is and, interesting that it is a uh, relationship to text as a as a way to formulate a theological argument which seems to be a, a pattern that uh, uh, flourished much later in life well it's true and you know I you know because later I took all these degrees and things I, I, I there's one very good theological uh, I should say biblical studies book theological book by a scholar and he makes the argument that when people stopped learning things by heart by memory and they relied more on on written text on the book, the experiential side of the religion immediately decreases because when you're learning something by heart, you tend to sort of turn it over inside more mm -hmm. and more. And so you don't have to have the book. You don't have to have a physical book or an ebook or anything. So you, you remember things and then you contemplate them, you reflect on them. And so I did have the benefit of this sort of, this sort of training. Now I've mercifully forgotten all of Luther's, catechism except for some of his theology uh which i still use occasionally when i go teach in germany uh, my <laughs> aramaic things uh and that's very helpful but um other than that i would say those are the most of the major influences in my early life and and also for some reason i had an early sort of premonition of death ah. that was on the more personal side that that people die things die uh, i remember this quite clearly when i was four or five Wow. And then thinking, well, so what's life really about then? Which is probably too young to have those thoughts. But anyway, that's, you know, uh, this sort of, how would you say, uh, I wouldn't have put it in the words I'm now putting it, but it certainly was, was an impression of impermanence. Mm. That, that we're not here forever. And so we should be here for something. And I think that that did predispose me to... Uh, you know, to what I ended up doing in later life, which uh, mostly I, because as I said, we, in my family it was an alternative culture, although we were hidden within a mainstream culture. I immediately, when I went to university, rejected Christianity, the King James Bible, all this stuff. I got into the anti-war movement in the seventies and the early ecological movement and, and all this stuff and uh, existentialism, although I could barely understand the darn thing. Um, and uh, and and then I became, uh, you know, rather than just write literary essays, I became an uh, investigative journalist uh, oh. in the early 70s and worked in New York City for a while and and learned how to investigate things. Hmm. I think I mentioned that when I was with you all, that uh, in those days, pre-internet, one could actually, in, journalists actually investigated things. It, it, took, it, it, it took real work, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever. And
and you actually went into the congressional record and the federal register and you cultivated sources. And as I say, I was living in New York City, so I cultivated sources, particularly in the area of uh, food and drug and consumer protection, since mm -hmm. that was the area I was most familiar with from my childhood. And I had sources in the FDA and people that would tell me things, you know, uh, and then I would, you know, attempt, why well, would I, I wrote various articles trying to expose various things. So that was my, that was my early life. So it's basically a, an early life of suspicion, <laughs> <laughs> semi-paranoia and inner reflection and learning multiple languages. Yeah. And and being a member of a of a secret almost cult, I guess. Instead of being a member of a secret almost cult, inner spiritual channeling thing, right. and sort of like, oh my God. Hmm. So you know, my, I think you know the, if you can turn your faults into some sort of positive, some sort of positive benefits, you're halfway on the way. <laughs> Indeed. So maybe you could walk us through then how how the. Uh, Formal spiritual path emerged for you. Yeah, when when did when did um, you begin a relationship with Sufism, and and how how did that uh, uh, come to be? Well, it happened like this, Rob. Um, you know, I was working for an alternative news service in Colorado, Denver, Colorado. Uh, that was originally affiliated with <clears throat> what was called the U.S. Student Press Association, which was a, a network of, of college and university presses all over the U.S. who were all at that time independent. Uh, and uh, we syndicated stories to them, mostly exposés in our particular service, uh, which was un linked to this uh, New York group called Liberation News Service, uh, we were syndicating stories that were mainly exposés on ecology, anti-war movement, um, wrongdoing in the government, and um, and also, you know, sort of uh, general social pieces, um, you know, new lifestyles. This was the era where the hippies were just coming around, and so we, we did stories on that, and here are all these strange things going on, and, you know, we were all in our 20s anyway. So I read a story, beg your indulgence on this, I read a poll because we were reading voluminously in those days um, and I was a speed reader so I read a lot of stuff and th this poll asked people, uh, they asked, the, uh, so this was a Gallup poll, they asked a sampling of the American public, um, given that we have no solution to the problem of nuclear waste disposal, is this a viable way for us to get our energy supply? And about 70% of the of the American public, which was a, it was a fairly decent sample, I remember remarking to myself, said no, given that we don't know what to do with the, with the waste, this is not a great, this is not a viable way for us to get our energy. And then as they were doing some of these polls, they asked a, a bunch of different unrelated questions on different sorts of issues. And then they came back uh, toward the end and they said, well, if you could, if you had to give up things from your lifestyle, uh, because we no longer had nuclear energy, would you be willing to do that? And again, 70% of the people said no. We would not be willing <laughs> to give anything up. And right there, uh, this, this shattered my world as a young journalist, because we believed in those days in what was called consciousness raising, which was not about meditation. It was about telling people the truth, exposing things. And then if you gave them the facts, they would act 
appropriately. Right. Um, it's a naive point of view, I, I admit, but um, we, we mostly believe this. And uh, that's why we worked 60, 70 hours a week and did the things we did. So this sort of shattered my world and I had a, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any recourse to there's the numbers on the page and I immediately began to look into myself, well, why do I change? You know, what causes me to change? Do I make life-changing decisions on the basis of facts? Uh, or is, this, is it largely based on things that one would call irrational? Uh, feelings, feelings, gosh, what are those? Emotions, um, you know, all sorts of things. Do we ever have enough information to make major life decisions uh, with all the information? Well, no, obviously we don't. So I began to look into what, what, how to control my mind and what are emotions and, uh, you know, the, or whatever spiritual paths I could find at that time. And I went through quite a few of them. Uh, there weren't that many in Denver, Colorado in the mid-70s, but there were, there were a fair few, and there's a few I'm glad I didn't get involved in. Um, and uh, uh, finally, I ended up uh, doing a story, doing a feature story, as we used to call it on the Sufis, ah. um, and traveling to California, which is where the Sufis were based in, that, in those days, uh, the American Sufis, who were pretty much all working together in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to one of their one of their camps, one of their gatherings. <laughs> it was not like a concentration camp, but it was it was a camp. It was a meditation camp, and um, part of it was a lot of quite a bit of meditation with uh, Pirvalide and Nayak Khan, and and part was uh, with students of uh, Samuel Lewis who were doing walking meditation and dances of universal peace and those sorts of things. So I, I felt at the time that that was a broad enough, if you excuse the expression, church that I could live within that. Because basically they, they were saying the same thing that the Theosophists say, all religions have the truth. And the main thing is to sort of realize that or experience it in some way for yourself and make it your own. And as opposed to the Theosophists, the Sufis seem to have some actual practices or exercises, whatever you want to call them, that would lead one to certain inner experiences. So that's, that's how I got to oh. their door. It's interesting because the, the, a lot of people of the generation of uh, seekers in the 70s uh, tended to find Buddhism. Uh, that, and I, I was a, a child living actually in Denver, Colorado in the 70s. So I was, I was sort of fascinated by, well, I wonder what, uh, uh, what possibilities there were at that time. Uh, I mean, did you, were you exposed to Buddhism or were, you, were there other traditions that were represented or? Was Sufism like the only thing that really uh, called attention to you? You know, I, I couldn't actually, I mean, I looked, I was researching. I couldn't find any decent Buddhism. I mean, maybe I missed Trungpa. I, I don't know if Trungpa was, a, of course, Trungpa was a conflicted figure anyway, as we yeah. found out. But I, I, Naropa was not yet around. Right, when right. I was, not not in the 70s. I think, yeah. I think the big Buddhist influx had, had yet to happen there. And Vipassana wasn't wasn't really known. Uh, I first met Buddhists when I came to San Francisco to study with Sufis, and these were Zen Buddhists. Yeah. And then there were also some Tibetans uh, that I was able to study with um, uh, that were living in the, in the Bay Area. But um, Samuel Lewis, you see, who was a Sufi, he was also trained in Zen. So we had sort of a Zen slash Sufi upbringing, at least in my early spiritual life. And, uh, 
the Zen class that Samuel Lewis had started when he was alive was still going. <clears throat> and all the Zen practices that he had inherited from his teachers were still there. So that was my that was my Buddhist exposure, really. And still that is still mainly my main Buddhist exposure. And still you you clearly felt comfortable or um and I'm wondering about how that how comfortable you were initially working with the Sufis? Did that deepen over time? How did how did that um, how did that proceed? Well, I was comfortable at the time um, from the chanting aspect, from the music aspect, from the movement aspect. Uh, those things seemed to be what I needed, mm -hmm. and the variety was much greater. Uh, the variety of traditions represented was at the time much greater than, for instance, in the kirtan that I had experienced. So mm -hmm. again, this is pre-Krishna Das and Jayutal and, and all mm -hmm. these wonderful kirtan folks that came along later. But the kirtan was mainly in Ananda Marga uh, that we had in Denver at the time, and I forgot what else. But it, it, was, it was rather limited. And I liked the fact that the Sufis at that time, their chanting was from all these different languages. Also, there wasn't the Islamophobia, really, that there is now mm. about Sufism. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it didn't have the bad PR. Uh, not that Sufism has such bad PR, but again, it's linked to Islam, uh, at, at least more and more now. Right. And uh, so that, I, I was still suspicious. I, I've always been a suspicious person, so I wanted to find out the way they're translating these phrases, these phrases in Arabic, is this, is this for real? You know, so I, I began then to learn some of these these languages myself. Ah. Well, the the other piece before we get into the uh, language part, because that, that's certainly a, a fascinating line of discussion here. You've mentioned that the uh, that you are also attracted to the practices, and in terms of like esoteric practices, uh, uh, forms of walking meditation, uh, other forms of meditation and chanting. I guess, given your background, you wouldn't have had a strong practice side as a child in, in the esoteria that your family was interested in, right? It was more descriptive. No, I, I, I didn't know of any. I mean, Casey, there was really nothing in the Casey yeah. tradition. It was all listening to Casey's channelings and things yeah. like that. So how did, how, did, well, how did your engagement with the practice then land with you, you know, as a, at, at that point in your life? Like if you started doing meditation practice, having come into it with this something of a shattered worldview because you realize that people yeah. are not the rational actors that you'd hoped they were. How, how did the, uh, the inquiry into how your mind operated actually land with you at that time? Well, I had tried some preliminary forms of meditation before I got involved with the Sufis. And it was, it was all rather how do you say, rudimentary at that point. It was all about, you know, calming your mind. And uh, there weren't really, uh, I was not exposed to adequate techniques. Now I know that there are some in all, in various traditions, but I was not exposed to anything except just, you know, breathe, watch your breath and calm your mind. Now that can work if you're really concentrated and are really desperate. I was pretty desperate, but I still had a very active mind. And so uh, my mind tended to take over the practice. So I needed something else to sort of stun my mind. And, th and as I've discovered with the Sufis, the, 
the sort of temporarily stunning the mind occurred with the music, uh, with the chanting, with the movement, or we get the body more involved. And that was able to balance things out for me. Then when I would sit, the sitting was more effective than mm-hmm. just sitting cold, so to speak. And we, and, and for our listeners, we should just <clears throat> point out, and, uh, and I can do this from personal experience because I think uh, you and I, Neil, are, are a, a similar age that at that point in the early and mid seventies in America, there was very little understanding of or even advocacy for meditation in general society. In fact, you know, I knew the word, but I had no idea about the practices at a similar time in my life. So I would that that's true. I mean, even when I came to live in the UK in the United Kingdom in uh let's call it 1993 when I came here permanently to live more or less. Um, mm-hmm. Even psychology was virtually unknown here in the UK. Really? That you, it was inconceivable that a person <laughs> would go to a therapist unless they had serious mental illness. Mm. So the whole notion of that we had in California, you know, in the 80s, 70s, 80s of, you know, therapy, holistic therapy, uh, all, all this humanistic <laughs> You know, Gestalt, yeah. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So we didn't, you know, even with California being fairly far ahead, um, it, it isn't what it was. It was not in the 70s what it is now. Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. But, you know, mindfulness and meditation on every every corner and every phone app. So. So we're so so then uh, just a, just an understanding of of your personal life trajectory. Then you encountered. Uh, the Sufis and and the various practices that where Sam Lewis had amalgamated uh, Zen and 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 so forth, and you became exposed to this new world essentially. Did you yeah. continue your investigative reporting career during this this initial time? How did you how did you as you're learning um, different languages, uh, Arabic presumably, and perhaps others? Um, how did your how how did your life um, change as you moved into the Sufi practices? Well, for a while it, it didn't change too much because I was uh, syndicating uh, a column to newspapers mm-hmm. uh, when they were actually independent newspapers in the U.S. Uh, on consumer protection and alternative issues. And I was able to move that anywhere. So I still filed my stories in the same way that I always did. And I had, you know, I, I forget how many newspapers I had in my, in, that were subscribing to my, my column, but uh, it was a fair few. So I, I continued with that. And then also I worked for a while for San Francisco Consumer Protection. Hmm. It was, this was a CETA funded program by the San Francisco uh, city to help consumers uh, speak for their rights, write, tell them how to write complaint letters. And then, you know, we would, if necessary, we would write very, uh, how would we say, eloquent, threatening letters to large corporations, <laughs> get them to back down on the fair, uh, uh, you know, sorts of bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And we got quite good at these sort of things. So, and then, of course, investigating things. But that, that job didn't last that long because the city pulled its funding for it. Uh, but it was, it was a very interesting job. And that, there's, of course, I made friends, friendships of people who had similar interests. So uh, I would, I would say I gave up writing as a journalist in 
probably a couple of years after I got involved with the Sufis, two, three years afterwards. I, and I just got tired of my own voice, really, mm. my own written voice. And then I, I just thought, well, I've got to give this a break for a bit, you know. And then maybe I'll find something else to write about. And I did eventually, but, you know. Well, I, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead here because you've recently uh, uh, authored a series of books collecting um, and editing various writings of Khalil Gibran, of course. Um, and and but but I'm bringing it up because you just said I got tired of my own voice. And I'm wondering to what extent, you know, these this series of books is um, is a product of, of a similar sort of impulse later in life. You know, there, it, it wasn't actually, but um, because there, I did go through various periods as, as a writer, one does go through various periods where you think, well, is there anything more I really want to do now? Mm -hmm. um, and I did reach that stage in sort of the mid 2000s when I was going through some life changes. But um, no, the Gibran books were because I was already familiar with Gibran. And the, the person who contracted the books, uh, I had known when I worked for Harper San Francisco in the, in the 90s mm -hmm. for my book, Prayers of the Cosmos. And he called me up, or a friend put him in touch with me and we talked about it and he said, do you know anything about Khalil Gibran? And I said, yeah, I studied Gibran because Gibran was an Aramaic Christian and for my books on the Aramaic Jesus, I had contacts with various Aramaic Christians and, and a number of them, how would we say, they, they alerted me that, that, that Gibran really comes out of this background and I mm -hmm. found that that was true. So I became very intrigued with Gibran and also the Gibran that people never heard or mm -hmm. say, the less popular Gibran which is what I tried to bring into those four little books. Right. So, but, to, but then to get back to, I, this was a little discursion just because uh, of that uh, uh, comment that you made. Um, so you're putting aside your uh, investigative reporting career and moving more and more, I gather, into the um, exploration of Sufism, but more generally than as you, because you've just mentioned here, Maronite Christianity, uh, you move, you're moving into these Middle Eastern yeah. religions, as you've come to call them in, in your books. And, and I'm wondering how that evolution occurred, because not that many people would lump these different religions together in the way that you tend to do in many of your books. So, so that's an interesting evolution that I want, I want to explore here. So t tell us about that. Okay. Well, there, there were two steps. Um, the first step is when I stopped being a journalist and I no longer had a job with the city, I thought, well, what am I going to do for a bloody living? Excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, well, I like, I like dances of universal peace, but it's absurd. I'm not going to lead dances of universal peace. I'm not going to lead circle dance for a living. So I'm, I'm going to find out who knows what else about uh, change through the body, transforming a person's life through body awareness and all this. Mm -hmm. So to make a long story short, I took a degree in somatic, somatic, not semantic, but somatic psychology mm -hmm. uh, and studied all the different body-oriented disciplines available at the time and tried to look at their commonalities and, uh, and what then one could bring into a private practice from that. So this was 
you know, Feldenkrais and Alexander and what, what Reich, uh, Wilhelm Reich brought mm -hmm. and even what Freud has to say about the body and Rolfing and, and all sorts of things we studied, both experientially and, you could say, theoretically. Uh, and then we try to find which things suit you. Well, uh, the things that suited me more were things that had to do with sort of the softer approach and also working more with groups. So with body awareness, like sensory, uh, what's called uh, uh, sensory awareness, Charles Brooks, Charlotte Selver, if you've ever heard of them, this was an early body awareness uh, discipline called discipline exploration and various forms of softer Reichian therapy where you're experiencing the breath and where it stops in, in, in places in the body and, and then how one works with those things. So I began to go in that direction. And then at the same time, I was, I was still editing, I was editing books. Uh, and I was editing the diaries of Samuel Lewis. Mm -hmm. This is the founder of the uh, San Francisco Sufis uh, and also of Dances of the Universal Peace. I was editing his diaries for a book I put together, uh, uh, basically his autobiography, uh, which is called Sufi Vision and Initiation. And Samuel Lewis writes in one of his letters that he says, before I die, I want to do two things. I want to start these circle dances, dances of universal peace, and uh, so that people can learn to eat, dance, and pray with one another as a sort of peacemaking uh, project. Mm. And he said, the second thing I want to learn to do is to pray the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Mm. And that struck me, because he had not done that, and no one remembered him doing that or even investigating it. Mm. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I've started with Arabic. How hard can Aramaic be? And... Uh, and so I began to investigate Aramaic and look for people who knew it, uh, who could teach me things, and began to s gather resources. Again, outside of the Internet, Internet was not available at the time. There was no Internet to, to speak of in the early 80s. And, uh, and so I began to learn, uh, learn Aramaic and say, well, what's, what's Samuel Lewis on about? Why was that so important? Uh, not only theoretically, but I began, I began to chant this Aramaic. And I began to have, um, how would we put it? We say, I began to have experiences with the Aramaic, inner experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I had not had chanting any other language. Um, and that doubly got my attention. And so I began to lead this sort of chanting with movement, with Aramaic, uh, for people in, in the form of that, what's called Dance of Universal Peace. Mm -hmm. And so that was those the same time I tried to do the somatic therapy thing. I'm doing this. And uh, then to complete the picture, really, uh, a friend of mine who was a Dominican brother introduced me to Matthew Fox, who at the time was also Dominican and had started uh, the Institute in Culture and Creation Spirituality in Oakland, California. And uh, my friend was leaving the faculty, and he, and he introduced me to Matt, and he said, well, here, here's a person who could take my place, and, and Neil can do these various things, and he has this background. And, and so Matt hired me, and I worked with Matt for a number of years there. Uh, and Matt, Matt Fox encouraged me to, to write a book on the Aramaic <laughs> and what I had discovered, because Matt was all, all over writing books, and he still is. So... Uh, I, I owe it to Matt for, for bringing my first book, Prayers of the Cosmos, into Harper, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And 
them sort of accepting it really because it was it was all on a chance really got it so um without revealing anything that you that would be inappropriate to to reveal i'm wondering about the inner experiences that you were you were mentioning it, can you say whatever you can say and uh, would like to say about that if you will so that people have a sense of what was what was emerging from unexpectedly i mean that's one of the things it seems to me about the inner life is if it's genuinely the inner life often there's a lot of the unexpected there there's a lot of unexpected i mean uh you know praise uh, thank god for the sufis the sufis had and have although it's rarely not used so much anymore a real retreat technology uh, where where one goes into silent retreat for a number of days on one's own uh, and you you do various practices to help you discriminate and clear the space and, and then do your retreat within that how would we say within that more protected atmosphere hmm. and this is really what the Christians would call discernment or some people call it protection practices things like that so I was on one of these retreats and I decided to start chanting the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, uh, Jesus' prayer from Matthew and Luke. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began to hear various tones, various music, and my body began to move in ways that I was not used to have it moving on its, it was moving, it was sort of moving on its own. I've mm -hmm. written about this, so I'm not too embarrassed about talking about it at this point. Although it seems really cuckoo, and I never talked about it for 15, 20 years. Uh, and then, you know, I heard a voice, and this is where you really have to watch out <laughs> when you hear voices. You know, I heard a voice saying, this, this, is for, this is not just for you, you should share this with other people, and, and, you know, share this in the form of this dance of universal peace, and... You know, I went home, I talked to my wife at the time. I said, you know, this happened. I don't know, maybe I'm going crazy or maybe this is whatever. This is delusion. And she said, well, you know, just try it out and see what happens. And so I <laughs> began to try it out with people. Uh, and of course, people, you know, people didn't mainly want to be chanting things, something like Aramaic, even though it was very simple. They wanted to chant Allah Allah or Om Sri Ram Jai Ram. Uh, but a number of people were also attracted to it and we began to chant and do the movements and and it turned into a whole thing, is the best I can put it. And uh, and so I I followed that, and it followed me. And more books followed, and more Aramaic chanting and meditation, and sort of a whole exploration into Jesus's spirituality through his native language. Um, well, we can we can recommend to listeners that they uh, they need only go to the internet and find the the list of those books. Um, but um, but I'm but I'm I'm wanting to um, pursue a little bit this sure. um, this aspect of skepticism that you that you brought in because it seems to me that that's one of the hallmarks. I mean, it sounds like you you describe yourself as having a a very healthy dose starting off, um, which is which which can be helpful. And I think was particularly helpful in the time period that you um, are describing, encountering all these uh, ideas, practices, etc., because there was very little sophistication in the American spiritual scene. I think it's fair to say, very little practice and discrimination uh, at that period. 
And and um, I don't, I'm wondering if you have something that you could expand on about this, how this worked for you. I mean, you you, you described this uh, uh, the advice from your your then wife uh, to just try it out and see what happens, which is an awfully sensible uh, suggestion. But um, but of course, when doing that, one wants to be maintain a kind of uh, uh, along with jumping in, maintain a kind of skeptical attitude, um, or at least that's my that's my view. And I'm interested to hear your view. Well, you know, it's it it was a whole process. I mean, as everyone's life is, um, I, I was not on my own. Fortunately, uh, the person who who became my teacher whose name was Moynadine Jablonski, was the successor of Samuel Lewis when this notion of successor was something. He was the Dharma heir for your Buddhist listeners. And, um, and he had a tremendous difficult time because he had all sorts of very, I would say, very high spiritual experiences. Uh, and yet at the time, he had a, he, A, could not be Samuel Lewis, so he had the expectations of those of his colleagues who expected him to be that. And B, he was still a young guy in his early 30s and needed to live life. Mm. And, and what we what I experienced coming into the Sufi community after Samuel Lewis had passed away was a number of people just sort of living on Samuel Lewis's aura in his vibe, so to speak, very exalted, uh, very expanded vibe atmosphere genuine genuine mm-hmm. stuff but they were very young and they they didn't have balance you know they had didn't were had worked a job they didn't have a family mm-hmm. some did some didn't you know and so when these basic life things come up uh the idea was that you would just do spiritual practice and the problems would go away so again even in the spiritual community or especially in the spiritual community the notion of psychology of having help from a therapist uh, you know, processing these things in a in a more in a deeper way, uh, this was this was pretty much uh, frowned upon and almost forbidden. So uh, it was only later, in doing more research on Samuel Lewis, I found out that he had gone to a therapist, which no one knew uh, about. Or it was actually it's it's right there in his diaries, but people had ignored it, or he had talked about it. And yeah, he had gone to a, a, a Rogerian therapist, uh, you know, based in Carl Rogers School. And, and Moynihan had to go through this too. And he, how would we say, discovered that this inner search, this inner psychological, uh, deeper search, a search in the shadow, if you will, had to happen for spirituality to become a reality. Otherwise, one just spins out of control and, and goes into drugs or addictive behavior or sexual harassment and all sorts of stuff, which actually a number of students of Samuel Lewis did do. Uh, and some that one ended up in prison and one killed himself on heroin and, you know, all sorts of stuff, which would cause many of us to be disillusioned with the path. But except that Moynihan was saying, well, look, here's how you avoid that. You have to get help. You know, you, you have to go within, you have to acknowledge the shadow, look in the dark places and start to deal with that. And so he developed his, although not requiring people to go into this, he said, you know, use whatever you need he started a type of spiritual therapy called soul work uh, mm-hmm. 
shared with us, and this became very important uh, in terms of trying to keep a person, you know, dealing with everyday life, even when some of these, so, so to speak, inner experiences, these so-called spiritual experiences were happening. And so the idea was to bring, you know, make, why do we have to call them spiritual? I mean, why aren't they just experienced? I right. mean, why are we divide spiritual and everyday life? I mean, isn't it just life? <laughs> and then aren't these, I came to conclude, aren't these so-called spiritual experiences just human experiences, which we had forgotten we could have when they are useful? So then it, then how you're guided into these things becomes a, you know, a, a multi-phase approach where one is working with one's subconscious, with one's inner self, uh, and also working, you could say, with in a more transpersonal way at the same time. So Moendin was the pioneer for that in our lineage, and he he kept a lot of us alive and kept us balanced, such that the tradition, such as it is, is, is still continuing. This is a, a, a fascinating uh, topic because our own background spiritually is in a variation of the fourth way work. And in the, in the, in the Gurdjieff tradition, there is a rigorous, rigorous focus on your everyday psychology. And if anything, uh, less focus on what I'd call transcendental experiences. Yes. And when we've talked with, uh, Buddhist practitioners, like we uh, had a conversation with John Wellwood at one point, uh, uh, who coined the term spiritual bypass, I got the, uh, it was an interesting impression that there are a lot of traditions, particularly in the era that you're describing, that really focused on the transcendental experience and and elevating yourself away from, let us say, the quote-unquote ordinary or daily uh, mundane aspects of life, and that that issue or that 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 process really does have the consequence that you're describing that. Uh, it takes attention away or focus away from spiritualizing the very ordinary aspects of life and uh, making those a, a, an object of contemplation in the same way that we open our hearts to the divine unity. So I'm fascinated to hear that this corrective evolved in the community and that, that there was a real recognition that this had to happen and that there was, there needed to be some practical work on self to use the, kind of fourth way terminology to yeah. really advance and balance out the uh, uh, transcendental experiences that people were having. Yeah, I, what you're saying is, is absolutely true. I mean, um, we, there, was, there was very much in all the traditions that I was familiar with uh, in San Francisco Bay Area in the 70s, it was all, it was all about bliss. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that people were coming out of the early psychedelic movement and some of them never really came out of it at all. <laughs> and so uh, spiritual practice became, excuse me, a di just a different sort of, sort of drug. Um, mm -hmm. And they used it until it stopped getting them high. And then they would do more, harder practice, but still sort of, how would you say, holding away what needed to be noticed. Mm -hmm. As Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, what, bring forth that which is within you. Otherwise, that which is within you will kill you. Uh, if you bring it forth, it will save you. But if you fail to bring it forth, it will kill you. So this, this, is, this is clearly what happened. Um, and then most of the traditions that survived, 
they had to go through some rebalancing. Uh, and every all my colleagues that I'm familiar with from these various traditions who are still around, and many are not still around, whether they're from Buddhist tradition or Santana Dharma, that is some sort of branch of Hinduism, or uh, Zen or Buddhism, or even uh, Christian mysticism, they, they all went through this, uh, how would we say, uh, revolution, really, of the way practice is done and the way the path is considered. Uh, Sufism was no exception, and we weren't the only ones, but we, I would say we were the first ones. And then later, some of the more, to beg the term, more Islamic traditions also uh, went through some of this when some of their practitioners became psychologists and, and started to bring bring things into a more of a balance. And this is where you have the arising of the Diamond Heart School and yeah. some of the other uh, these other branches, which which happened quite a bit later. Really. Yeah, the the in the Buddhist side certainly it seemed like uh, uh, we got from uh, Wellwood's work that there was a integration of psychology with Buddhism that, again, coming from a fourth way tradition was sort of didn't make sense to us at first until we really uh, went deeper into this uh, question, because, again, the Gurdjieff work is, you know, if almost to a fault, focuses on the, the flaws of the ordinary uh, uh, automatic mind and, uh, you know, saves the good stuff for much later. Uh, and, you know, the I was one question I have is that there's always been this sense that Gurdjieff got some of his understanding and some of his formulation from involvement with Sufi traditions. And there, there are elements of uh, the fourth way uh, cosmology and practice and uh, point of view that rings very similar to some representations I see in Sufi work. And yet this, this rigorous, examination of the um, automatic nature of the mind and the the very factors that give rise to the irrationality that you described as a young man, rec recognizing that there was no solution with people acting as rational actors in life, is something that Gurdjieff, you know, uh, relentlessly focuses on both at the personal and the, and the uh, group level. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's true. I, I have never been able to track down the exact, um, how would you say, location of Gurdjieff's connection. Uh, but no, no one in, has. <laughs> he, was in, he was in the Caucasus area, so uh, there were Sufis there, and uh, you know, there's so many different Sufi lineages yeah. that I can easily imagine uh, that one of them he came in contact with, even maybe not even a lineage, but you know, just a freelance. We say, you know, there were a lot of freelance and still are freelance Sufis. They're not necessarily connected to lineages and they're just being themselves and have something to give. And if there's someone there to receive, then they, then they give it. Yeah. We, we, we did talk to a teacher that claimed to have some knowledge about this and that uh, his own teacher uh, who was originally from South America uh, apparently was a co-participant with Gurdjieff in a offshoot of a Naqshbandi school that was doing an experiment, as they described an experiment that was not so focused on a particular religious tradition, but was uh, admitting people of all traditions. And the mm -hmm. claim was that this was the uh, source of the 
of this material. And, and, and this guy actually said that he, at one point he did a, uh, some time or did a retreat with this school, but the school has since disbanded because I think it was in uh, uh, a part of Afghanistan and uh, anyone associated with it ultimately ended up in New Zealand and uh, are no longer doing an experimental school in this. I think they're just wrapping up whatever work they uh, came here to do. But, but that's, for what it's worth, there, there's some uh, uh, a genetic history that uh, seems to be uh, in there. But again, you know, this question of bringing the attention back to the ordinary is something that is uh, a challenging one for people who are looking for spiritual experience to give them something special or give them a sense of the special in life. Sure. Uh, and our own teacher was, uh, you know, very rigorous uh, about trying to make the ordinary extraordinary. And that, that is part of the nature of the yeah. practice. And actually that, that theme comes up to me, like uh, as I was reading your uh, Sufi book of life, as you describe these different pathways that, uh, arise in the Sufi tradition, there's a, it's not like you're trying to go for transcendental experience so much as you're trying to reconfigure experience as it presents itself to uh, be illuminated by the transcendental, but not be, you know, uh, washed away by the transcendental. Yeah, I I would say that's, that's the big innovation of that uh, that book, which is very much influenced by my teacher, who had passed by that time, uh, Moynihan, and um, yeah. So I mean, rather than saying if you if you chant this, you're going to get this, I would say if you're experiencing this in your life, this could be something to investigate. Yeah. This could be a friend for you to, in, you know, go in through this doorway and then reframe in this way. So yeah, it's you know it was it was a product of certainly of his influence and then some my psychological training as well. So. And, and it made, and, and it fits, you know, because I had teachers uh, outside of Samuel Lewis's tradition who were t- saying, you know, well, really, these, these names are not names, these chants are not magic words, they're just aspects of our inner being, and we call them these things, and, and by conveniently calling forth these aspects of our inner self, uh, we're able to own them more, to reframe them, to make them all part of our our one personality, our, our one humanness, if you will. And, and that made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Smith. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D., Neil Douglas Klotz is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. Living in Fife, Scotland, he directs the Edinburgh Institute for Advanced Learning, and for many years was co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He is also co-founder of the International Network of the Dances of Universal Peace. Under his Sufi name, Sadi Shakur Shisti, Neil also offers spiritual retreats combining his work with native Middle Eastern spirituality with the lineage of Shisti's Sufism. We'll be right back.
welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D. Neil Douglas Klotz is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. Living in Fife, Scotland, he directs the Edinburgh Institute for Advanced Learning and for many years was co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He is also co-founder of the International Network for the Dances of Universal Peace. Under his Sufi name, Sadi Shakur Shisti, Neil also offers spiritual retreats combining his work with native Middle Eastern spirituality with the lineage of Shisti Sufism. The other aspect that you brought up when you started talking about uh, your teacher, Moinadine Jablonski, was uh, this issue, or what came up for me at least, was, was, the, was the issue of, of working in the world or house, sort of a householder vision of how one can work in the world, which, to be fair, is, is not, uh, even today, I think, is not necessarily as appreciated as the, as the ideal of a monastic going off or someone mm-hmm. going, you know, the, in India, someone going into the forest and meditating uh, rigorously or, mm-hmm. or a Tibetan in a cave or whatever, whatever we're, we're talking about here. And, and so, but you, but, but I was very uh, touched by the, how you described uh this process that you observed your teacher go through um, where he's, you know, stuck with this hot potato and, and, and nevertheless has to, has to represent, has to hold that in, in an acceptable way while himself finding his way through this thicket um, that we've been talking about. So I'm wondering if you can talk talk a little bit more about this this householder monastic kind of ideal mm. and how how that how you see it articulating for people today in the 21st century. Mm. I would say you know probably very few of us are called on to be uh, monast- monastics. At least the people that I encounter, I do occasionally encounter someone mm-hmm. uh, to whom that might suit the development of their humanness. Uh, but most of us are stuck with the world as it is. And, uh, you know, if we get a week, a week on retreat or 40 days on retreat or whatever you can take occasionally, or a couple of days or an hour, um, we're, we're doing well, uh, just to slow life down and, and get off the, get off the virtual wheel, which is a lot faster than it was when I started the path, I have to say. <laughs> always on uh, contact. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult thing. I think, you know, what you mentioned about this Nakshabandi school the, that perhaps Gurdjieff came out of, uh, this is the way I see that the spiritual traditions are again, try, are again focusing. Uh, and something like this did happen in the early part of the 20th century, where Nayat Khan, Hazrat Nayat Khan, when he brings a type of Chisti Sufism uh, to the West, to Europe, in the first part of the uh, early 20th century, he he um, people won't learn prayers in Arabic. 
Uh, they won't learn the body prayer in Arabic, so he tra he changes it all into English. And he, he tries to make it a lot more accessible so at least something can be given to people. And similarly, in the Zen tradition, out of which Samuel Lewis came, the teacher of his teacher did something very similar in Japan. He decided that monastic Zen in Japan was dying, and they needed to start uh, a new initiative which would reach out to lay people, people who were just living ordinary life, and be able to teach them meditation and, and, and the path so that the path could continue and hopefully benefit beings. And, and I see something similar, uh, you know, happening today uh, with various forms of mindfulness uh, or uh, even in the Sufi tradition where things are extracted from their context and then tried to make be made applicable to people who don't necessarily want all the cultural trappings that go with them. Hmm. Now, you know, the, the question then arises, how many, how much of this cultural trapping is really the art of the spiritual practice? Right. It's beauty. It's the, it, you know, it's not like taking a vitamin pill. Uh, it's, it's the beauty of the meat. So, you know, when do you extract so much that all you've got is sort of just a pill and, and the, the art of life is lost because the art of, you know, the art of your practice just becomes, well, I'm going to go do, take five mindfulness days to calm my mind down as a sort of stress management technique. But where's the art? Uh, and, and the same thing happens in all traditions. I don't mean to point out mindfulness from this, but mindfulness is the most popular. So uh, it certainly happens in, in Sufi tradition as well. Well, well, there are there are certainly critics of um, of the propagation of mindfulness in uh, you know in in the Buddhist tradition these days. I mean, several books out there uh, now and uh, in private conversation, it, it uh, there are there are folks who are, who are suggesting that the that the um, ingress of psychology into Buddhism, for example may have gone too far. In other words, there, there's a, uh, a bleaching of the impulse towards mysticism. I guess we're, we're, we're kind of talking about tacking back and forth from this early point in the 70s that you were um, describing or, or comment so. on that. Yeah, it's, it, it really is tacking back and forth. Yeah, the, I, I agree completely. Um, and, and there's no permanent resting place uh, for this question. Uh, we, again, using words of Jesus from Aramaic, I mean, we always have to decide what is the right or ripe action for the moment. Uh, his definition, that is, Jesus is in his native language for what was good, was what, what fit, what was resonating with, with the substance of being, or what he called Allah, what resonates in the moment with the source of all, and you try to be ripe like a tree is ripe or like a plant is ripe. And so the traditions are constantly undergoing this reevaluation. Um, how much, when you take out too much, uh, maybe you've taken out the heart of something. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're, when I, again, you know, when I read your material on Sufism, there's a very strong linkage to ultimate unity however, whatever words you want to use around that. And when I look at the configurations of mindfulness that arise in like the business community now, there's uh, 
a pushing away of any language that suggests any context beyond simply being in control of the functioning of your mind. And yeah. and I think that that's, we lose the holy uh, and, you know, the, the holy is got kind of a bad rap because of uh, the way that term is overused uh, in, in like con conventional sort of materialistic Christianity. But when we lose that connection, uh, it just becomes another way to control our functioning. And that, that seems to be the, the province of the ego. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very much, I mean, each, each tradition has its, has its Achilles heel as I see it. And, and you put your finger on the one from that tradition in our tradition. Um, because we're all about heart and love and devotion and da 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 and all this wonderful stuff, uh, then flight into light becomes very much a possibility. And not only that, but, you know, then, uh, how would we say, uh, addiction to charisma, personal leadership, mm -hmm. uh, all this sort of stuff becomes an issue uh, also because, uh, you know, the, a person's natural impulse towards the beyond or, or to love, uh, to, cre to create, those things can then be misused. And, and that's, that happened in Christianity. It happens in any tradition where you have emphasis on heart. Uh, and uh, so these, these, are, these are pitfalls, you know, we're, we're constantly dealing with, frankly. Yeah, and I, I would say that the critique of the fourth way tradition is that it goes maybe far enough away from the heart that uh, it, it, it can in its uh, worst manifestations just be a kind of a form of bullying. And that uh, it, and so the corrective, you know, it, 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 I think I, I get what you're saying that there's no, there's no real seat for this because uh, we're talking about a living tradition. And so we have to be responsive to whatever's happening in the moment. And that, and that uncertainty the mind doesn't like that uncertainty. Of course, we want an answer and we want a prescription, but uh, uh, right. I really get from what you're saying that th this is something that we, we just have to navigate. We, we have to float between and uh, uh, feel it out from moment to moment. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, things, we have to relook at the whole term spiritual uh, to the extent, where is it useful? Where is it not useful? Mm -hmm. From where I'm sitting, it seems like, the, the impetus uh, to, to love, to feel devotion, uh, relationship, uh, the, the bigger sense of love, as Gibran talks about it, uh, this is a lost art. And maybe that's not going to be kindled by something like uh, ultimate reality or oneness or Allah or Ram or, you know, any God concept anymore. Maybe it's going to be kindled by something like the planet like we see happening with the younger generation and uh, you know, the climate change rebellion and all that stuff. So when you listen to some of these people's talk, like Greta Thunberg, I mean, it's clear that, clear that they're talking with this, the same sort of sense of devotion and passion uh, that, it, it, you know, it's not, it's not supremely intellectual. I'm not saying it's not intellectual, but the, the base has, a, has an aspect of passion and of heart uh, that, although not religious, in any sense, or even spiritual, it certainly would not define it as that. It is this natural human impulse yeah. to 
to go be to to offer something beyond the self to to ask what is what is life about anyway and why are we here and and how can we help each other this is very interesting to me because i've been reflecting uh, of late uh, on just the sort of language that is deployed uh, by various folks in the ecological movement uh, I, I think i think you're right to point at uh, greta thunberg as 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 someone who's amazingly skillful, especially for her age, in being able to touch people. Mostly, mostly not because of technique, but precisely because of her sincerity uh, and her willingness to reveal everything that's inside as, as she's experiencing it. But, uh, but um, and then I also read of remarks that people have made, people I agree, I deeply agree with, and whose whose goals and mission I fully support, who who characterize how I might wish to see uh, something like a spiritualized understanding infuse our connection to to this, for example, the greater planet, et cetera. And yet I see, and, and, and yet I see a sort of uh, unsophisticated at best and at, at worst, um, just uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a recitation of, or it can be a recitation of slogans mm-hmm. that don't touch, that don't open the heart. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, I'm intrigued by your, by your suggestion that this is an arena that, that, that will in fact touch young people now. That was one of the questions that I, that I wanted to uh, inquire about is how you see, how you see young people today. I mean, you're, you have, I, I, I know you, that you visit America from time to time, but you're located in, in the Scotland and the UK and, and so, um, so I'm wondering how how this how you're seeing people that you're working with these younger people responding to the urgency of our, of the situation uh, uh, ecologically, et cetera. Like I say, we all get into things in different ways. It's, it's my story is similar. You know, I came in through the social action doorway, really. Mm-hmm. and reaching the end of what I felt I could do on my own or the limitations of my mind or being or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I would expect that that's going to happen uh, with various, uh, uh, or I see it happening with various young people as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get ignited uh, or I would say roused out of a sense of hopelessness by joining something like Extinction Rebellion or, or whatever it may be. Uh, and then if they stay the course, they're, gonna, they're going to wonder, well, how can I be effective with this in my everyday life when there's no demo happening? Uh, and for that, one needs more resources. One needs more inner resources, if you will, to, to continue to, to make change not only in one's personal life, but then to be effective and, and to help others in one's community life. And those are the sort of people that I see, basically. They've, 
taken another leap and they come to hear some strange thing about Aramaic or we chant this or we do that or they've read one of my books on native Middle Eastern mysticism and I don't know it strikes them for some odd reason and and they go down that that route so but I always try to say well don't don't stop what you're doing necessarily but consider you know how much of it is yours to do you know this is really the ultimate question in life what is actually mine to do and for that one needs discrimination one needs I would say a, a deeper sense of how would you say a deeper sense of one's own heart one's spirituality one's way of of checking you know am I in the moment is this an appropriate response to the moment is this too much for me to take on is it just enough or am I underplaying my hand you know I need do I need to go bigger or do I need to take off take out more and take on more in my life because I'm playing it too safe. So these are basic human questions and I don't see them ending really uh, no, no matter what happens. And, and yes, we are under the gun with this, with this climate change uh, situation. There's, there's, there's no question. I mean, so I'm, you know, addressing that more and more in my retreats and, and hopefully giving people some resources with which they can, they can deal on the on the inner side with the question of how how can I be effective or, or what is mine to do. I'm curious if you find today the situation is different than what you described when you were reading this survey of people in terms of uh, the com <laughs> community at large. Is are we still facing the same kind of uh, uh, paradox of humanity that? Um, we all want positive change and we don't want to give anything up. I would say we are there. <laughs> <laughs> we are definitely there. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think when I look at uh, uh, situations in, uh, uh, in a historical context and, and, and kind of apply the, the Gurdjieffian model of shocks that, um, it seems like change often comes from uh, major shocks and the shocks can take different forms. Sometimes they can be yeah. cataclysmic. Sometimes they can be introspective yeah. and it's clear that some sort of shock is necessary. It's not clear to me at this point, whether that has to be, you know, global ecosystem collapses uh, or whether it possibly that a newer generation will just bring inner resources to bear that uh, shake people out of the, the it's not even fair to say complacency but let's say the day-to-day -day focus of just getting by yeah i mean and this is a day-to-day -day focus for for most folks on the planet so yeah you know those who can make those who have the luxury to to make choices i think we have to start making them um i'm starting to just fly less and not come to the states because you know it's too much carbon costs basically and i can do more things on the internet and uh, connect with my students that way. So yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just I was just wanting to bring the conversation back to the native Middle Eastern spirituality mm. that that um, you sort of you sort of earlier in the conversation sketched how you got into entered the Aramaic, but it's of course not just the Aramaic. Um, that and and this and your your foundation of, of Sufi study, um, it's it's wider than that. And I'm wondering if if you could say something more about number one about how 
people are resonating with that. I mean, obviously individuals are pulled in the way that individuals are pulled, but, but I'm, I'm also wondering in this moment, uh, certainly in the U.S., and I don't know to the extent in other countries, but I think it's definitely present in other Western countries, at least this moment of Islamophobia. Um, what, what's the place? How did you, how did, how did, how did that continue to evolve for you? The, your interest in this amalgamation, if you will, of these different, uh, related traditions and how that lands today for people. Yeah, I think, I think I would, I'm being very modest, but I think I was ahead of my time, actually. No. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I think that's fair to say in, in some um, ways. But uh, in the sense that, you know, from the Aramaic, from looking deeply into the Aramaic, uh, I decided, well, if this is really something, I'll, I'll go see what the scholars think about it all. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I took a, a PhD, I, I studied for a PhD uh, in uh, religious studies in, in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation with a specialty in uh, the common hermeneutical traditions, interpretive traditions of Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, Classical Syriac Aramaic, and Classical Arabic. Because my intuition was that many of the oldest words, the most powerful words that are used as sacred phrases as mantras, if you will, in these traditions, they really don't change over thousands of years. So mm -hmm. linguistically, my suspicion was that these things go back to ancient human experiences that then people encode in, in language. And because the Semitic languages are based in a root and pattern system, that means you've got letters put together, two letters put together. Each letter is a being, is a living experience. You put two together, they marry, and then you have a new individual, and then you can have children and cousins and like that. So it's it's very much not about words and how would we say uh, semantics. It's about breaths and sounds. Is the way these languages were created by an ancient ancient nomadic people who we don't even know the name of really. And so my you know my suspicion was that these were just ancient human experiences, and so then there were commonalities underneath the so-called religions, which allowed me to name what I call the native Middle Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. And that became this book, Desert Wisdom, which first came out in 1995. And, and Harper was just being bought by Rupert Murdoch and, and, the, and Sky and Fox and all this. And, and they didn't know what to do with the book because it was the previous group that had approved it at Harper. And so when I went out on a book tour in 95, I mean, the book was sitting on the floor somewhere in most bookstores because they didn't know where to shelve the darn thing. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't religion as they saw it. It certainly wasn't Christianity. And they couldn't pigeonhole it in one of the categories that they had. So, you know, I realized, okay, well, yeah, that's, uh, I have a problem. I think we've got a problem here. <laughs> so I redid the book about 15 years later and, and there was much better response to it. Uh, but I've, I've now sort of gone beyond the native Middle Eastern model and, just, I'm just thinking nomadic, nomadic humans, really. Hmm. Uh, early nomadic humans had different ways of, of breathing, of sounding, of expressing things. Uh, and some of those become uh, then sacred phrases. For instance, a, a free-flowing breath uh, 
sounds something like this in the Semitic languages. It's like a, an oo sound, and if you blow it, you can put an R at the beginning. Just, that's just free-flowing breath. My breath is flowing freely. Um, as Jesus says, no one knows where it comes from. No one knows where it goes. It's not being held anywhere. And this becomes then later the word for not only breath, but for soul. And the soul that is always connected. Mm. Whereas when you have a breath that's individualized uh, in a being, in a self, it sounds like this. So it's an inhalation into sort of the nasal, if mm -hmm. you will, third eye area up here between the bridge of the nose and the, and the middle of the forehead. This sound then becomes the word uh, nefesh in Hebrew or nafsha in Jesus's Aramaic or nafs in Arabic. And this refers to not only breath, but also the word for the individual self. So the individual self is a temporarily held or inhaled breath that reality in that reality inhales in us, mm. and we're gradually, you could say, metaphorically, symbolically, letting out that breath as we go through our lives, and that breath returns to its source when we depart these bodies. So you have these sorts of words become, I believe now, our original human experiences that go before religion, before myth, before story even. And then later they get encoded uh, for safety in certain words or certain rituals or things like this. And this, be, this then becomes uh, only an issue because these are meant to be medicines to help us remember how to be human. And sometimes different power-seeking groups uh, make them into poisons uh, mm. to acquire wealth or to acquire position or to grab land or to get power over people or divide humanity from itself or all these things that happen uh, through the history of religion or and even in the history of spirituality some of the spiritual groups uh, go through some go through similar trajectories really so, so this is very interesting to me because um you mentioned uh, this focus more generally on nomadic peoples. And, uh, you know, my, my PhD is, is in uh, anthropological archaeology, and the focus mm -hmm. of, of my dissertation was uh, the, some of the last hunter-gatherers in Northern Europe. So, uh, so hunter-gatherers are, are almost uniformly nomadic, some to greater degrees than others. And honestly, I, it had never occurred to me, not that we have access to the, to the way, to the, to the way they would, would have understood the utility of sound, of, of breath, et cetera, in the way you're describing. And nevertheless, there are still and have been still uh, groups. And it strikes me <laughs> a question that I, that I now want to ask. Um, is is how that how how this print these principles you've just articulated would apply to these groups outside the the Near East basically have you ever studied that or considered that or had exposure to any of that I have considered it um, you know you know I don't have again my theory is simply a theory based on 
research in one particular area, this area that the West ended up calling the Middle East, but it's really sort of, you know, West a where the West Asia tectonic plates uh, put pushes together with European tectonic plate with the African tectonic plate, and you create this sort of rift valley zone that mm -hmm. runs up through the Jordan Valley and ends up being highly volcanic and volatile and and surprise, all these religions come out of this this sort of vol volcanic upheaval uh, sort of area. And I would suspect, but I have no information or research, that some of the early human experiences have to be the same. And the way they're articulated with sound and breath uh, vary according to their ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is, is it forest? Is it tundra? Is it grassland? Is it a combination of these? Is it mountains? Um, you know, which combination do, do our human ancestors arise then? And then how does language arise? The one thing I do know is that for sure, language does not arise from a dictionary. Yeah. In, the same way a child, in the same way a child learns language, this people, people mistake this all the time. And they think, well, grammar says this. Well, grammar be damned. I mean, children don't learn language from grammar. Children learn from sound and breath and from the embodiment of their parents. And early humans, why, why would we think they did anything but that? Uh, later, grammar comes in and jumps in just like theology does and tries to manipulate these sound meanings and, uh, and becomes almost another theology in some traditions like it does in Islam with classical Arabic grammar arising long after the time of Prophet Muhammad and basically changing all the meaning of a lot of words. Uh, well, and some of the pathways that you describe in the Sufi Book of Life, one of the things I enjoy about the book is that you have the roots, and you talk about these uh, consonantal roots and the um, meaning of the parts. And as a uh, as a kid, I was fascinated by ancient Egyptian, and um, mm. you know that, that was where I was first introduced to like a Semitic language, where even then the writing system. Con consonants would come together and then become a different symbol. Yes. And you've mentioned a couple places where you can trace back uh, a term that maybe even is reflected in the uh, Egyptian motif. So here is a long-standing civilization that was uh, maybe started nomadic but became anything but. And I'm curious how you see the influence of that, that whole line of that that Semitic line influencing the Semitic lines in, in the um, in the Hebrew tradition and the uh, Arabic tradition. Um, I'm sure it. I'm sure it had an influence. I mean, some people think Akhenaten was Moses, or, or gosh knows what. I mean, this all this is possible. Um, when I my knowledge of Egyptian is is rudimentary uh, compared to the other languages I mentioned as. You know, in terms, but in terms of Babylonian Egyptian, Egyptian was also spoken. Hieroglyphics come later, and so the the sound of the of the Egyptian, uh, you've you've got some similarities there, I would say, uh, that do come into uh, Hebrew. Uh, Jude, well, I won't say talk about we won't talk about religion. Talking to the Hebrew language, the mm -hmm. Aramaic language, and the Arabic language traditions, there are certainly imports uh, into that tradition, uh, particularly um, this sound, 
<laughs> I'm back to these strange sounds again. The chem uh, in alchemia yeah. or alchem, uh, this becomes the same chum as in the, the Hebrew word chuchma, which has to do with in it with holy wisdom, with, with sacred sense. Mm. So chum is just like we have it today, or we even use it in English or in Western languages where a person goes hmm and that can mean well let me reflect on this or I'm going to take some time to reflect on this or it can even be hmm you know in sort of a sense of surprise but always it's with a sense of sort of reflecting which means let me take this so to speak inside and let it roll around in there and I'll think about it and come back to you later or I don't want to say what I, I don't want to say what I really think about this Hmm. But I'm going <laughs> to hold inside what I really think about this. So, you know, so, you know, there, there's definitely, there's some old, there's some old stuff there. And it, yeah. 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 I mean, that, 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 the, the idea of sound and spoken language as a, uh, as kind of the elements of our experience is, is a fascinating one. And uh, some traditions in the East and the, the Hindu lineages of, uh, like to liken particular languages like Sanskrit as encoding the, the you know the basic sounds of uh, our our nature, and I, I guess I find it refreshing in your work that Semitic languages are like a completely different structure, where you have these you you kind of have these patterns uh, of consonants that uh, and then the vowels kind of change around for different meanings, but you've got you kind of got this skeleton that uh, constantly has this changing flesh on it. Yeah, basically, and sometimes you can add in arms and legs and whatever, and <laughs> mix and match the skeleton too. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a fun thing, and you know, as I say, I don't have a whole life to to study Sanskrit or its relation to Avestan or you know some of the other wonderful things, but I'll I'll leave that to other folks and <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, so uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, just inquire a little bit. I know you have, I mean, you, you've alluded to your uh, uh, academic studies and, and academic work during this conversation, and I know that you've, you've had quite a, quite a strong uh, presence in, in a certain academic community. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how that, because I, having had a, a fair amount of experience and still continue to have a fair amount of experience with academics in my own tradition. I'm wondering how that for you articulates with, I mean, I mean, you have the advantage as I do not from anthropological archeology, span you have the advantage of, of your subject matter being mysticism or, uh, and so forth. But I'm wondering how the academic life, and your approach to it and your experience of it might inform your work, number one, but also inform your understanding of what the academic enterprise itself offers or um, negatively offers to uh, humanity. Well, yeah, indeed. I had, again, you know, round two of unreal expectations. I thought, you know, I'll go through <laughs> These American Academy of Religion conferences. Uh, I worked my way up. I became the, the co-chair of the uh, mysticism group of the American Academy of Religion 
I think I was one of the first freelance scholars and actual practitioners of, of any type of mysticism to actually come into that position, only because I got really, really good at writing academic papers. Mm -hmm. uh, I understood the language of it. I understood the methodology of it. It's all about language and methodology, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're, if you're on firm ground of your methodology, then you're, then you're good. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'll try to, I'll try to change things for the next generation of scholars. Uh. Well, <laughs> well, 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 that sound says, says a lot right there. <laughs> you know, I said, well, they're the ones teaching the teachers of the, of the children or whatever, the teachers of the teachers of the children. And, you know, but it's like, oh, my God, talk about a closed shop. Um, we were able to carve out a sort of free space in this field of so-called mysticism. Mm -hmm. And we changed it from being a sub-branch sort of, of, of Christian mysticism with uh. this very funky definition. And we made it into a sort of a very early postmodern talking place where mysticism is about uh, is a is a term in which we meet uh, how would you say and we investigate the experiential traditions of various uh, er, uh, various lineages and then also we add in social criticism or postmodernism or psychology and so it's always about a mixture. Because to study this thing, you always have to have sort of be be mixing. It's it's never just one thing. So I went like to, we, we, when I was a chair, we went like totally postmodern on the whole thing, and we outdid all the postmodern people with their own methodology. <laughs> Basically, you postmodern the postmodernists, and they'll they'll say there's nothing there there, and we would say well then there's nothing there there where you say it's not there, which means there there that let's talk about that. And let's Got have it. an interesting conversation. And maybe this interesting conversation becomes an academic paper, which is useful for people. So we actually were able to strain out papers, academic research, where there was actually some there there. Uh, hmm. People were actually researching something genuine. It wasn't just about language. And hmm. those became the papers that we, you know, that we brought into the group every year and and gave to the gave to the academy. So I, I was there for about ten years uh, doing things and. Then I decided, well, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done my time and you could say the it, it was really difficult. My colleagues, most of them are just trying to scramble to keep their jobs at various universities or they're trying to get tenure. Um, and tenure is harder and harder to get these days, according to my friends. Yeah. And so it's all about publisher parish and, you know, be, you know, appear on the panel or, you know, give a paper or. Da da da, and all these things, and I was just free of all this stuff. So you know, it's like I was very sympathetic to people. Uh, many of them are in there because they're also suspicious people like me, <laughs> and they want to do good and they want to help people. So you know, I God love them, Goddess love them, or whoever is going to love them. I'm I'm sure it will continue. And th there is a rigor in the in a lot of the scholarly research that is helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a what we would call concentration, uh, hmm. you know, sure. all the traditions demand. The problem is when the, as as especially like with the spiritual tradition, when all you're doing is gazing at your own navel, and thinking about yourself. You know that's like the worst thing to do, right? Uh, and that's essentially what a lot of academic papers do these days. It's just all about language and about conversation, and the person just wants to be seen. 
but there's no actual investigation. There's nothing new. There's no new ideas there. But, but I, I will tell you that there are still new ideas coming forth in some people's research. Uh, but the academic establishment in various departments, they really don't want it. I'll tell you a story. I was giving a paper, a paper in the Society of Biblical Literature because of my Semitic language background mm-hmm. uh, on the Gospel of Thomas and relate in, uh, and this is a sister organization to the American Academy of Religion. And this particular Thomas group had been there for decades, just going over around and around and around about the same thing. And I, they, for some reason, allowed my paper to be given to their group and to whatever audience collected. And I don't know what they thought, but I got up there and tried to give, and started to give the paper. And, you know, I was about halfway through and I still had time left on the clock. And they started to say, you know, well, your time is up, Dr. Douglas Plotz, and da, da, da. And they actually, they were afraid, they were afraid for people to hear what I was saying because it undermined the whole basis on which they were working, <laughs> uh, which was this. Look, you're using a Western Platonic worldview to consider the sayings of Semitic, native Semitic language people. And these people didn't know Plato. And so they didn't know about the division of mind, body, spirit, or past, present, future, or any of this stuff that you all are taking for granted when you do these translations and, and do this interpretation. So wouldn't it be good to use a Semitic language cosmology or Semitic language psychology or worldview to consider something like the Gospel of Thomas? And that was... That was beyond the that's that's really fascinating. I, I've I've heard controversial papers in my discipline, but not but but never had had people shut down. I've never seen that happen. Uh-huh. That's unusual. Congratulations, well, I, I guess. I had a few group once too. I can tell you, but anyway, it's it's this stuff is crazy. I got it. I got it. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, um, well, um, so we've touched on so many aspects of this interesting life that uh, that you've led. Um, I'm wondering what you're up to now. I mean, you've just, comp- you know, as I alluded to earlier, you've you've just been. I think the final book is about to be published of the Gibran series, or has it just been published? I'm not, I'm not quite clear on that. But I'm interested in beyond yeah. that. What the next 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 stuff? Well, yeah, they, 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 I got into doing this sort of little book format. And uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing because I said, I said, well, okay, and each book can only be how many words? And it has to be how large? And I think I mentioned this when I was at your store. And mm-hmm. they said, well, yeah, it has to be this size, and this is going to be the title, and, you know, and it's going to be this many words. And I said, okay, well, yeah, I'm an editor. I can do that. So I did that for the four Gibran books and for my little book of Sufi stories, which was a lot of fun to do. And so then I, I, they said, well, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. So I just finished another one because the Gibran book I finished a year ago, the Gibran books I finished about a year ago. And mm-hmm. it's a sort of little book of uh, what was called little book of wild wisdom is I think what we're going to call it, hmm. which is about early ecological, early voices from nature uh, based on my, my, crackpot theory that different mystics are divided not in the way they express themselves different mystics are not divided so much by religion as they are by the ecosystem in which they they have their experiences hmm. so it, the book is divided into forest and grasslands yeah. and mountains rivers and streams and and you know sort of like that and then talking about animals and things like that so it's all 
and you know the traditions are not mentioned except in the footnotes. So interesting. So it's it, it was a fun thing. So I just finished that one, and so I'm. I look for next. A couple other projects I'm working on, longer books actually. And you're continuing your uh, uh, teaching and working with students in the. Uh, so I'm. I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Largely in Europe. I mean, uh, mostly in Europe. But I, as I say, maybe once a year I'm coming to the U.S. Um, and that's that's about it at this point. Do you see the face of spirituality is in, in working with students now different in the modern world and because you you alluded earlier that we don't have as much space in our lives now and uh, uh, we have all these technological ways in which our attention gets siphoned uh, so the emptiness is kind of closed down so how do you how do you see that uh, uh, showing up for students you're working with yeah, I've I've been watching this with interest. You know, will the attention span gradually shorten? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, to some degree, it is true. Of course, it, you know, a lot of the spiritual practice, we'll call it that, is all about sort of lengthening attention span, uh, creating more moments, um, stopping, uh, slowing things down. You could say, slowing our perception of time down. So this is always a feature, uh, but you know we're we're having to adapt to, you'd uh, say, mediums like media like this that we're using right now, with meditation apps and things being online and uh, online courses and things like that, where people download videos and they do practice in between, and you know all these sorts of things that my colleagues are doing, and and I'm about start also and I'm already meeting with a lot of my students with zoom and, and other sorts of media like this so um, yeah it's, it's all you know that, that that's part of the the change of life I think there are some things that can all my feeling is I'm quite sure there are only there are some things that can only be communicated person to person mm -hmm. uh, when you're in the atmosphere in the room with a person and I, I do miss uh, some of that. Oh, I still do a fair amount of that. And so, how much can be communicated with the with the ones and zeros through the internet when we're doing these video things or audio things? Uh, I, I think it's possible. So I've gotten into using, you know, providing things for some of the meditation apps, things like this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the analogy of scaling comes up for me, like. You know, there's a difference between a handcrafted product and something that is reproduced. Uh, the reproduced product can reach more people than the handcrafted. Yeah. And uh, it's also, there's something a little bit different. Uh, there's at least a mediation of the personal touch there. And Yeah, it's, it's, it's second best. I mean, I have to say personally and... You know, when when one leads something, say a meditation or whatever you want to call it, guided contemplation in person, it's always different. I mean, one never, if you're repeating yourself, there's something something's very wrong, I think. So, uh, so yeah, as you say, when you capture some of these things and then put them out, it's it's. I even do that in my books. You know, I have these body prayers that are in uh, various of my books, like uh, Desert Wisdom or Original Meditation, and it's like. I've, I never lead it that way. I'll, I'll lead it some other way. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's just for the person, 
you know, reading the book, I'm trying to feel what they might be able to to grasp and perhaps have be useful for them. And yeah, interesting. Well, should should people be uh, want to find you on online uh, since we're talking about uh, the modern media? Uh, yeah. How do people get in contact with you? How do how do you know? Do you have a website that? Yes. Yes, my website is abun, A-B-W-O-O-N dot org, abun, A-B-W-O-O-N dot org, abun being the first word of Jesus's prayer in Aramaic. And so everything I have, you know, the usual stuff up there. And then I also have a Facebook page still. Um, and we'll see how that goes. But yeah, and so a number of people connect through that way. And I, I post things at Neil Douglas hyphen clots, uh, not the one with the bunny with teeth. That's my personal page, which I hardly use, but the one where you have this nice picture of me and covers of my books and all that sort of stuff. So. Okay. Well, well, when we post the podcast, we'll put all that, all those links up there on the uh, landing page. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do or send them to me and I'll, I'll post it to my Facebook or whatever you need. Yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, you know, this has been uh, a real pleasure for me on so many levels. And um, I, uh, one of the reasons that we do this show is because I keep, we keep getting so much uh, fertile, fertile um, imaginative connection through these sorts of conversations. And this has been um, definitely one of the highlights in our recent uh, series. So thank you so much for uh, this well, fabulous, fun conversation. I, I knew this would be good because, you know, there's so few mystical iconoclasts around. <laughs> Whatever you want to call. And so I'm always happy. You know, my wife said, how long is this interview? And she said, I said, two hours. And she said, is anyone going to want to listen to you for two hours? And I said, I don't know, but you know, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. I wouldn't listen to me for two hours. But well, well, we would say when you, when you showed up at Mini Rivers, uh, you had one of the uh, record-breaking uh, attend attendances. Yeah, so it was nice. We had standing room only, so that that was uh, a certainly a credit to how many people you've reached and touched. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful, and uh, yeah, I yeah, I'm very I'm very grateful. I'm thankful for my life. Well, thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. Yes. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right. All right. All right. Have a wonderful evening in Scotland. I see that it is long turned into evening there. The sun has set. <laughs> yeah. The sun has set. The sun has risen for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> great. Well, have a great rest of your day, guys. All right. All right. Thank you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Thanks. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we have been speaking with Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D. Neil Douglas Klotz is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. Living in Fife, Scotland, he directs the Edinburgh Institute for Advanced Learning and for many years was co-chair of the Mysticism Group of the American Academy of Religion. He is also co-founder of the International Network of the Dances of Universal Peace. Under his Sufi name, Sadi Shakur Shisti, Neil offers spiritual retreats combining his work with native Middle Eastern spirituality with the lineage of Shisti Sufism. 
Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Alex S. Kohav, Ph.D. Alex Kohav is the editor of and contributor to the recently published Mysticism and Meaning, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. He is an independent scholar based in Boulder, Colorado, and an affiliate faculty member of the Department of Philosophy, Metropolitan State University of Denver. His research has established a new area of scholarly study, Pentateuchal mysticism and First Temple ancient Israelite priestly initiation tradition, achieved via Husserl's Noema Noesis highly distinctions, enabling reverse engineering from the text to the practices that inspired it. Kohav is currently reconstructing, developing ancient Israelite philosophy, that is, the foundational Hebraic metaphysics, epistemology, phenomenology, and ethics of early antiquity Israel. He also researches metaphysics and phenomenology of time, the self, being, and the relation between epistemology and attention. Tune in for that show on Saturday, October 26, from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, at the Thursdays at Many Rivers event series in Sebastopol, we feature Five True Things, A Little Guide to Embracing Life's Big Challenges. That's with David Rico, author of Five True Things, A Little Guide to Embracing Life's Big Challenges. That's Thursday, October 24, 2019 at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Best-selling author David Rico gets straight to the heart of how to find courage and contentment when life doesn't go according to plan. Rather than fighting against them, we must all accept these five true things. One, everything changes and ends. Two, things do not always go according to plan. Three, life is not always fair. Four, pain is part of life. And five, people are not loving and loyal at all times. Drawing on both psychology and spirituality, Rico offers time-tested insights on finding meaning and joy in life as it really is in relationships as they are. Five True Things distills the essential wisdom of Rico's popular book, The Five Things We Cannot Change. By changing our approach to our struggles, we can find deep happiness. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.